As we return to the book of Matthew, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We closed out last time in Matthew chapter 15. We spoke about the other feast that God, that Christ offered in the wilderness, the feast that was prepared for the Gentiles in the region of the Decapolis, which is around Galilee. We talked about how he had more to work with, less people to feed. You know, he had seven loaves. He had more than two fishes. He only had 4,000 compared to five loaves, two fishes, and 5,000 people that he healed, that he fed the first time. Had more to work with, less people to feed. Still, the disciples doubted how he was going to feed them. God showed his majesty in that. We talked about the beauty of that feeding just like the other feeding. We talked about God again, Christ again being our spiritual and our physical sustainer, but also that, you know, there's there's multiple times we are going to run into roadblocks, hardships, and issues in this world. We're going to face problems, and no matter how little or how much God has to work with, He can work all things out of nothing. He doesn't need a lot of material supplies to be able to be successful. What we need is faith and trust and confidence in His power. So it says in verse 39 of chapter 15, And he sent away the multitude and took a ship, and he came into the coasts of Magdala. Now, if you're reading from uh, from Mark's account of this, it says that he went into parts of Dalmanutha, or Dalmanutha, okay? Both of those areas are kind of similar. Magdala is a region, Dalmanutha, which is really hard to say, is also a region on kind of the northwestern coast of Galilee. So you just get that in all of Jesus' early ministry, he's just kind of circling around Galilee and he's revisiting all these areas. And here again he departs and he goes back to the other side of the sea. And it says in verse six, verse 1 of chapter 16, The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came... And they tempted him and desired that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and he said to them, Jesus answered and said to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather tomorrow, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, because the sky is red and lowering or angry looking. O you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky... But can you not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And there will not be any sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now, when you're reading this account in Mark, Mark doesn't even include the sign of the prophet Jonah. He just says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek after a sign? I tell you, there will no sign be given to this generation. And he left and entered into the ship. Now, what's funny is, is that 
when you look at this account, Jesus has already talked to the Pharisees. He's already talked to the Sadducees. He's already talked to the religious leaders before. Back in Matthew chapter 12, he had told them when they asked for a sign then, he said, no sign will be given to the to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the earth. So he already kind of has used this sign of the prophet Jonah before. He's already told them before that he is going to give them a sign, not a sign that they want and not a sign that they are going to enjoy. Okay, We've talked about the sign of the prophet Jonah before. We talked about how the, the idea of the death, burial, and resurrection is actually going to be a sign that they are going to absolutely reject. They're going to hate that sign because that sign is going to blow apart their entire religious order. It's going to end it. It's going to establish Christ as King, Lord of all. So they're not going to like that sign. He says, but that's the only sign you're going to get. Now, what signs were they looking for? Well, they were always seeking after a sign. In fact, that's what Jesus condemns them on multiple times. He says, the Jews seek after a sign. You're always wanting these signs, signs, signs. They're going all the way back to Moses when God gave Moses a couple of different signs, some physical miraculous things that he could do to try to convince the Jews. If you remember, as we were going through Exodus, Jesus, I mean, God is out there talking to Moses in the wilderness and God tells Moses, if you take your hand and stick it in your coat pocket and pull it back out, your hand will be as a leper. And then when you take it and stick it back in, it comes back out and it's clean. You can take your staff and throw it on the ground. It'll become a snake and then pick it back up again and it won't harm you. All these things that God gave Moses to try and convince the children of Israel that he was sent by God. Well, from then on, the Jews took it as just kind of a modus operandi that if I'm going to to confirm that you are sent from God, I got to have some signs. You got to give me something, you know, stick your hand in your in your breast pocket, do a little Napoleon thing and come out with a leprous hand and show me that you're from God. Cast a staff down on the ground. Show me that it can become a snake. Give me some signs. Give me some stuff I can see to show me that you are God. What we talked about back in Matthew chapter 12, which is very applicable here in Matthew chapter 16, is that if you wanted a sign, Pharisees, if you wanted a sign, Sadducees, all you had to do was open your eyes and look at what Jesus had been doing the whole time. Moses never raised anybody from the dead. Jesus already has. Moses never healed lepers. Jesus already has. Moses never cured blindness and deafness and muteness in people. Jesus has done all that. In fact, we have account after account after account after account of him doing these things. So if you wanted some signs, you've got all the signs you need. Not to mention the fact that you Pharisees and Sadducees, being such study and learned men of the law and the prophets, you should be able to look at the signs that were written in the prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled. You've had plenty of signs. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming together in this moment to try and catch Jesus. As it says that they, and they made their intentions very clear, that they came together to tempt him 
for a sign. They came together and show, wanted him to show them that he was Christ. He was the Lord. They were tempting him. They were trying to catch him. They were trying to get him in some kind of a fault, some kind of an error, so that he could then be shown to be a fake, to be a phony. Now, what's more interesting about it is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are teaming up to do this. These guys were not, you know, religious uh, companions. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two very bitter sects of the Jewish establishment, okay? It's almost like having Democrats and Republicans coming together on something. It just never happens, right? So the Pharisees and the Sadducees here never come together. They're not coming together. They don't agree. In fact, in one instance, you'll find in the Acts and in the Acts of the Apostles, you'll find where Paul kind of enters into a debate between the two and turns both of them against each other. Jesus, on occasion, will take them and turn both of them against each other. He'll bring up things like angels and the resurrection, which the Sadducees don't believe in. And he'll say, hey, Pharisees, don't you believe in that? And they'll say, oh, yeah. And then he'll say, yeah, but Pharisees, don't you? And so he tries to pit them against each other. I mean, there's times where their ignorance, okay, is shown forth in the gospel. They don't agree with each other. Here they agree on one thing. The one thing they agree on is this Jesus is a problem. They believe Jesus has to be gotten rid of. So they team up to try to tempt him, to persuade him, to try to get him to fall. So it's an ugly case of bipartisanship here where they join together to try to kill Jesus. So Jesus chastises them about asking for a sign. He says, you are a hypocrite. That you can't figure this out. He says you, you, you can look at the sky. And you can base off just your natural observation of the sky. Of a, as the phrase used to go. What is it? A red sky at night. Sailors dis- delight. Red sky in the morning. Sailor take warning. I mean we, that's a phrase. Okay. I'm not a sailor. And even I know that. Okay. And that's what Jesus is telling them here. You sit here. And you come up with these things of natural observations. That you can go oh, well, we know it's going to be stormy today because, whoops, it's a red sky. We need to be careful. He says, you can discern the faces of the sky, but you can't figure out this. He says, not not just in the fact that there is some supernatural prophetic stuff going on here, okay? So, I mean, there is some crazy stuff going on. There's some crazy stuff that Jesus is doing, okay? That as, as the blind man that Jesus heals, you know, he says, never before since the foundation of the world has anyone ever done this. Well, that's a crazy, miraculous, prophetic thing that anyone and a lot of other people did would look at and go, this Jesus is somebody different. I mean, that's what the blind man said. I haven't seen the guy. I haven't talked to the guy. I don't know anything about the guy. I don't know his background. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is this, that I was blind and now I see. That since all the beginning of the world, this has never been done. And that if he is doing this, there's, he has to be from God. So, I mean, it's one of those things that you got to look out and go, this, there's something miraculous about this Jesus. But they wouldn't. 
These Pharisees and Sadducees wouldn't. They were hard-hearted unbelievers. They hated Christ. They hated him so much that they joined together to try to capture him. So he says, you can see this natural with the supernatural. He says, you have this natural sign going on that you all recognize, you all perceive. You can perceive the natural, but you can't perceive this supernatural thing going on in front of you. How blind you must be. And let's just get it straight. It wasn't that they could not see that, okay? It wasn't that in all of their, I mean, again, they had all of this knowledge, all of this wisdom. They had all of, I mean, they're memorizing scriptures. They know a lot about the prophecies that were to come, about the Messiah that was to come. They, they knew these things. It wasn't that they couldn't see it. I mean, again, the blind man could see it, all right? If that's a testimony against anything, the blind man who Jesus healed could see that Jesus was of God. He didn't have any kind of theological training. It wasn't that he examined Christ and what he did and go, oh, well, based on Isaiah 42, Jesus must be the Messiah. He knew because by faith he could see that Jesus was something more than what he was. Nobody could do this. Even just from a natural observation, nobody could do this. So here it wasn't that they could not recognize it. It was that they would not recognize it. They didn't want it to be so. They didn't want Jesus to be the Messiah. They didn't want him. Why? Because if he was the Messiah, now who's going to pay attention to us? Who's going to listen to us? Who's going, to, who's going to follow what we tell them to do when the Messiah, the King, has ascended back to the throne of David? We're going to lose all of our status. We're going to lose all of our power. We're going to lose all of our glory and our honor. People aren't going to care about us praying on street corners anymore. They're not going to regard us as we throw in our alms. They're not going to care about us anymore. So they were willfully ignorant of these things as it's described in other places it kind of ties in well with what in what paul is writing to the roman church in chapter one of romans and this is generally thought to be more of a condemnation of the gentiles okay but it still it plays in here in romans chapter one in verse 18 it says for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifested in them. For God has shown it to them. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power in Godhead so that they are without excuse. So he's saying... Everyone out here, every one of you Gentiles or whoever he is speaking to specifically is saying, you all have no excuse for not believing in me. Why? Because I have shown you myself. Say, oh, well, how has he shown himself to these people? Because he says, everything that I have made from the beginning of time is an expression of me. In John's gospel, it will say that Christ made everything. Everything was made by him and through him. And then without him, nothing was made that was made. I think it's the Colossians letter will say that everything was made by him and for him. 
so that everything we see, everything that's in this world, all of us, everything about this world was created by Christ and for Christ. So even here in the Roman letter, when Paul is writing to them, he's saying that there's no excuse. You say, oh, well, they didn't know they didn't have the gospel. They didn't have the teachings of the Jews. They didn't have. He says, that's not an excuse. God doesn't give them an excuse. God doesn't say, oh, well, I didn't give you the knowledge. Therefore, you can't complain about not having. it." He said, no, I have been showing you from day one that I exist. You have just refused to acknowledge it. He says, because that when they knew God, so they understood it, they saw the things of the world, they saw the creation, they knew in their minds, they said, there has to be a God here. It wasn't that they acknowledged it in a way that they said, we believe in God, we'll follow him, we'll keep his laws, we'll do whatever he tells us to do. No, instead, it says that when they knew God, instead of glorifying him, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to beasts and to creeping things. He said, we knew that God existed. We can see it because look around us. You can't deny it. He says, but instead of acknowledging God Almighty, they said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to do that. We are a rebellious and wicked people. Instead, we're going to take this little lump of clay or take this little rock or take this tree and we're going to say, no, you are our God. Kind of like the hard-hearted Jews coming out of Egypt said, oh, no, no, no. We know we've seen these things of God. We've seen you work in opening the Red Sea. We've seen you work in all these other occasions. We've seen you deliver us. We've seen your plagues. We've seen all of your signs and all of your glory and all of your wondrous works. But instead, we're going to get out from where you have delivered us. And then we're going to grab a golden calf and say, no, no, no. This is our God. You say, oh, well, they knew They knew there was just no way with their wicked, rebellious, unbelieving hearts that they were going to submit to that God. They'll take his stuff, they'll use his blessings, and then they'll glorify a lump of gold and say, oh yeah, you must be our God. So here in the same way, these Pharisees and Sadducees, it's not like they don't know. It's not like they can't just by natural eyes perceive God's works in this manner. In fact, of all people in the entire universe, these people right here should be able to perceive that. And they could perceive that. It's just they would not acknowledge it. They would not submit to Jesus. Professing to be wise, they became fools. This goes on, and he notes this hypocrisy here, okay? He noted it back in chapter 15 when he said, you are a hypocrite because you say you you follow the law and you say you're so righteous, but you deny honoring your father and mother. You purposefully don't honor your father and mother. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You draw nigh to me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. Here he, he, he rebukes and incorporates that hypocrisy into the fact that they're asking for a sign, They're asking for him to show them something when, number one, he's like, guys, I've been showing you the whole time. You've had plenty of signs. But in addition to that, he would say, look, there are signs all around you of who I am, what I am, where I came from. And you refuse to acknowledge them. 
Said, yet you'll look up at the sky and you'll say, oh, looks like it's going to be stormy today. Oh, yeah, we saw Jesus heal thousands of people, but, you know, that's not really, that doesn't really matter. Oh, it's getting a little cloudy tonight. Maybe there's going to be a storm tomorrow. Oh, yeah, we know we saw Jesus heal a blind man, but, you know, we're not going to believe he's nothing but a charlatan. He is just, he is using the power of the devil himself to do these things. That's just, that's blatant rebellion. That is blatant rebellion. Taking the beautiful, majestic works of God and saying, no, they must be of Satan. The very antithesis of who God is. So there's this sad hypocrisy here with these Pharisees and Sadducees that they are the religious leaders. They're the professors who are saying they are the most astute in the things of the law and the prophets and the signs and the times and all these things. We memorize scripture. We know all this stuff. And yet, as they profess to be spiritually wise, they ignore the direct truth that is in front of them that they profess to be wise and they have become fools because right in front of them is Jesus. And he's been doing everything that he's been doing. You profess to be wise and that you can recognize all these things, yet right in front of you stands the Son of God and you will not accept it. That is a professing wise person looking like a really, really stupid person. So there's this sad testimony in this. To miss the clear and present reality that is right in front of their faces. And that would be Jesus. Who was constantly bringing forth signs and wonders to them. And they missed it. And they rejected him. So then we go back because he uses the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he says, just like the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's all you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. The sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, so as we've talked about Jonah before, I think it's important that we kind of bring Jonah back up into this since Jesus does. Okay, because and I've been so intrigued by the book of Jonah over the last year or so. And I think it's I have seen stuff in the book of Jonah that I don't guess I've ever seen. We all think about Jonah and automatically what do we first turn to? Well, the whale, right? Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, and bell, bell, belly of the whale. Okay, bell of the whale. That's a good one right there. Jonah spent three days and three nights in the whale's belly. Okay, that's what we think of. That's immediately what we go to. That's the story. In fact, we sometimes forget about the other three fourths of the story that was there. The whole reason why he got in the whale's belly, why he was even going where he was going and why he didn't go where he was supposed to go. We completely leave that off. So we talk about Jonah, but we kind of miss the main point of Jonah's whole story. As I've said before, do, have you ever noticed or picked up or thought about the fact that Jonah of all the prophets... Jonah's not even going to Israel. Jonah's whole story takes place outside of Israel. It takes place in the north, a lot of where we are right now. Okay, So Jesus is hopping back and forth over the Sea of Galilee. He went up to Tyre and Sidon last week when we were talking about that. And he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman. Nineveh is up in Syria. Okay, So as we're talking about Nineveh, 
here. He's outside of Israel. He's not even going to Israel. Isaiah, talking to Israelites. Micah, Amos, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all of them. They're all talking to Israel. They're saying, Israel, you need to get right with the Lord or some bad things are going to happen. For, you know, lack of full exegesis of those books. That's what he's talking to. They were prophets sent to Israel and Judah, the people of the time, the people that God had been ministering to, telling them, you are on the doorstep of destruction. If you'll repent, God will let it go. But as we know the story, they didn't. Okay. Here, though, Jonah is not sent to Israel. He doesn't preach to a single Israelite in his entire journey. He's going to Nineveh. Say, well, why is God sending him up to Nineveh? Why is he even going that way? Well, there's some probably grand, sovereign, providential things going on that we have no clue about. But I'll tell you that the whole point of the story of Jonah has nothing to do with Israel in their faults per se. It has everything to do with Jonah who is an Israelite, and an error that Jonah had that both affects the Israelites as a whole, but also Jonah as an individual. There was an attitude that Jonah had, in particular with this pagan, disgusting, Gentile place called Nineveh that we've talked about here. When the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus, they argued, they demanded that Jesus send her away. Why? Because she was begging after us like some disgusting dog. And we talked about that's a that's a racial issue. Okay. Well, Jonah's kind of apprehension to go to Nineveh was partially because he knew the Ninevites were very evil, mean people. But also because they were Syrians. They were worthless dogs of people. They were Gentiles. Why on earth would I go, the prophet Jonah, the prophet of Israel, why would I go to Nineveh of all places? So there's more in that story than we give it credit for. So we think about the sign of the prophet Jonah in this way, that Jonah spent his entire journey in that book in a self-righteous fit, okay? He spent his entire journey in that book in a self-righteous fit. He fled from God because he didn't want to do what God commanded him to do. He gave in to God's demands after, you know, that whole being swallowed by a whale thing. He whined about God's forgiveness and compassion on the people of Nineveh. He got mad at God. For not destroying them. And then he got mad when God did destroy a gourd. By the way, which God created specifically for Jonah to give him some shade. The whole thing is one big self-righteous pity party that Jonah was having. Every aspect of it was teaching a different lesson to Jonah. Okay, It was correcting things within Jonah. It was trying to correct the bad attitudes and bad actions of Jonah. Didn't even necessarily have anything to do with Israel. Now, again, there were some aspects of this that Jonah was embodying Israel's whole mindset. Okay? But ultimately, it was about Jonah. And ultimately, it was about every single one of us. It's what's the problem here with these Pharisees and Sadducees. 
So Jonah was missing in this case, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jonah was missing the clear and present reality that was right in front of his face the whole time. Every aspect of this story, Jonah is missing the mark and the point, okay? Jonah is going through this looking for, you know, whatever. Every time something changes, he thinks he gets past it. I get out of the whale. Okay, well, now I know what I got to do. I got to go preach to the Ninevites, and then I'm going to sit on the, the edge of the city. I'm going to watch God burn them to the ground. God's going, Jonah, you, you missed it, man. You missed it. You missed the point. Then he gets the gourd over his head, and then the gourd gets taken away, and he's mad about that. God's going, why are you angry? You're, you're missing the point, Jonah. So just like the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jonah is missing that point that's right in front of their face. We want to see a sign. And Jesus is going, guys, look, look, you're missing it. You're missing the point. I'm standing right here in front of you. I've done all these things in front of you. You're missing the point. You're asking for a sign like a bunch of hypocritical, adulterous, vile unbelievers. You don't even deserve a sign. But you're missing the thousands of things I've already done. Jonah missed the point about the going. He missed about why he was even going to Nineveh. He missed the point about the people of Nineveh. He missed the point about the gourd. And over and over again, he missed the point about God, what God was doing the whole time. So three ways that we fall into Jonah's error this morning. Number one, the three ways that, that, we, that Jonah was in error that we can fall into is that we miss God by running from his commands. We miss God while following his commands. And we miss God because we're angry with his commands. So we miss God by running away from his commands. We miss God while following his commands. We miss God because we're angry with his commands. So the first one on missing God... By running from his command. So, obviously, like Jonah, when we run from God, instead of running to God, then we are going to miss the journey that he has set us on. So, God has called each and every one of us to do something. He has created us in the way that he has created us. He has gifted us in the way that he has gifted us. He has called us in the way that he has called us to serve him, follow him, and walk with him in this world to ultimately accomplish his end. But if the whole time we're trying to run away from that, if the whole time we're trying to avoid that, if the whole time we're trying to get away from that, then we are going to miss everything, the joy, the beauty, the blessing of everything that he has called us to in the command to go. We talked about this and when we were talking about the going over the Sea of Galilee and we talked about how they went into the storm and Jesus came to them. You know, we talked about that whole scenario. Jesus commanded his disciples to go. He said, get in a boat and go to the other side. So we had that command, go, go do what I have commanded you to do. Go follow in the way that I've commanded you to follow. Now, like in Jonah's case, God said, go to Nineveh. What did Jonah do? I don't really want to go to Nineveh, so I'm going to go the opposite direction. 
Well, right off the bat, you're missing the blessing of whatever it was God was going to do in that. People say all the time, well, I just don't feel close to God. Well, I don't feel his presence like I used to. Well, me and God just don't agree right now. Well, my life is not fulfilling. Well, I can't see how God is working in this situation. Well, I don't know what God is doing. You know, there's all of these things that we will say from time to time in our life where we'll go, well, I just don't, well, I just don't, well, I just don't, well, I just don't. The problem is, in all of these situations, the reason that we feel or don't know or whatever, the reason why we will never be fulfilled, we will never understand, we will never feel His sovereign, loving Fatherly providence is our life is because we're running away from God in all of those situations. Say, well, I just don't feel close to God. Well, they, maybe that's because you're running in the opposite direction, away, I mean, direction away from God. Well, I don't feel His presence. Well, how close are you going to Him? Well, my life doesn't feel as fulfilling as I thought it would be. Well, how much are you hinging that life on God? So the right response to these issues, the correct posture in these issues, when you don't know why you run to God in prayer and you ask him, say, well, I don't know why God is doing this. I don't know why I'm supposed to. I don't know why. Well, well, where's the first step? If we're running to Oprah to find out the why, it's going to be a lot of problems for us. When you don't know why, then you run to God. You go to him in prayer and you ask him, God, direct me in this. Father, guide me in this. Say, well, I've done that. And I didn't get an answer. Well, sometimes the learning of the why is much more nuanced and deeper than we can ever imagine. Sometimes it takes a lot of pulling at the threads. It takes like a... 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. You're just getting little pieces here and there and you're trying to position them here and there and you're trying to get the whole big picture put together. But it takes a long time to get it there. When you don't understand. Say, well, I just don't understand this situation. I don't understand why it's going this way. I don't understand. Well, you run to God through his word. You open up his word and you say, well, maybe I don't know the answer to all the questions, but I can at least by the by the meta narrative, by the big picture that Christ gives me in his gospel. I know that there are certain absolute facts. I understand that maybe I can't fix this problem. I don't understand why this problem is in existence, but I do understand that God is faithful to me through every single problem I go through. Maybe I don't understand why things shook out the way that they did. But I do understand that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That he is more powerful than the most powerful enemy. That he has described me in terms as being more than a conqueror in everything. So maybe I don't understand it. And maybe when I open his word, it doesn't say, well, X plus Y equals Z. And that you're in this situation because God is doing this. But I can look at the bigger picture and I can see how God is working in my life in everything that I face. And that there's no aspect of my life where God is absent. 
every molecule of my body, the dead space between electrons and protons that make up my body that I don't, that scientists haven't even figured out what's in there. I know that God is in every tiny micro nano molecule that exists, that makes me up, that gives me my life and my being. So when we don't understand, we run to God through his word. When you don't feel God's presence in your life, you run to God in worship, whether that is corporately or individually. Or should I say in both corporate and individual worship? Because some people say, well, I don't need corporate worship. I don't need worship with other people. I just need to go off by myself into the woods and I can commune with God individually. And that does exist and that does happen. And I'm not saying that that is a no, no. What I'm saying is, is that both of them are equally superior. That God requires both. God calls for both. And God says that there's something in the corporate worship of him that does more and is more intentional and is more purposeful and has more more depth to it than the individual otherwise god would have never established the church he established the church for a corporate worship for a worship of people together otherwise he would have established monasteries and he would have established monkdoms and he would have said go off by yourselves and don't talk to anybody just commune with me on your individual. He would have established tree houses instead of churches. Okay? But he didn't. So when we don't feel God's presence, well, we go where God's presence is. Christ will say where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the middle of them. Say, well, I don't feel God's presence. We'll get with a bunch of God's people and see if his presence doesn't come in. When you don't see fulfillment in the life that God has given you, you run to God and his promises, and by faith you have confidence in them. So say, well, my life just isn't as fulfilling as I thought it would be. It's not as joyful as I thought it would be. I don't have as much kind of uh, gratitude or fulfillment in my heart as I thought I ought to. You know, all of these things. Well, you go back and say, well, where is your life oriented around? If it's not oriented around Christ and God, then that's the problem. If you're orienting your life around your family, your friends, your co-workers, your job, your wife, your husband, your daughter, your son, whatever it may be, if that is what your life is centered around, well, there's your problem right there. It's centered around the wrong thing. Your life was not given to you for your job, your family, or your spouse. Your life was given to you by God for God. So if you're centering your life around anything but God, then it's centered around the wrong thing. This again goes back to the analogies we've used as being, we've used about things being used for things other than what they're supposed to be used for. Okay? So you take a spoon and you try to cut a steak with it. It doesn't work very well, does it? That's because a spoon was never meant to cut a steak. The spoon was meant to eat soup. So when you try to eat a steak with a spoon, you have frustration and an empty belly. Okay? When you eat steak with a knife and a fork, well, now we've got the correct instruments for the problem, okay? Well, when we try to work our lives around anything but what it was created to be worked around, it doesn't work anymore. Then we get in these situations where we go, well, my life doesn't feel as fulfilling. I don't feel as overjoyed. I don't feel as enraptured with my day to day. Well, that's because you're focusing on all the things that your life wasn't meant for. Your life was meant for Christ. Your life was created by Christ for Christ. 
So then everything else, the family, the job, the friends, everything else does fall into that sphere. But we got to have it centered around the right center. Secondly, we're missing God while following his commands. This is one that I think gets us more than we think about. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were perfect legal scholars. They did the law, okay? And Christ would say, yep, you draw nigh to me with your mouth. You draw nigh to me with your lips. Your heart is nowhere close to me. You did all the religious stuff, but you had no heart for me. He says, and that's a problem. Jonah was the same way. Jonah ends up doing what God tells him to do. You would think Jonah would be just over the moon. Okay, I get it, Lord. I'm thoroughly chastened. I have been thrown up by a whale. I understand life now. I understand my place in the universe. Now I will happily go do what you have commanded me to do, and I will enjoy every minute of it. Instead, he gets up, he goes to Nineveh, and he says, You know what? I don't even know why I'm here. I don't even know why I'm doing this. And then when they ultimately repent... He is mad because he's like, well, why did I even come here? Why would I even do this? In chapter 4 of Jonah, after he saw what the Lord did, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry, and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I left my country? That's why I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. So basically, Jonah saying, see, Lord, I, I knew you were going to do this. Why did you even send me here? This is why I didn't come. I knew you were going to forgive him anyway, because you're so long suffering and merciful and slow to anger and great kindness. Why did you even send me here to do this when you already knew you were going to forgive them? So this is why I fled in the first place. There was no point of me coming and doing this. Do we catch that? He has been thrown up by a whale. He has this revelation song in the well's belly. Oh, Lord, you are the greatest and everything about you, and I'll do anything you ever tell me to do. And he goes and does it, and he's like, and I don't even want to do this, and I don't even know why I'm doing this, because I know what's going to happen anyway. Like he really knew what it was going to happen. He was hoping the place was going to get burned up, and when it didn't happen, he was looking for an excuse as to why he could be in a bad attitude about it. Self-righteous pity party. That's all this is. Well, God, see, I've done what you said. I did what you told me to do. A prince against the people never. Look what you did. You didn't even do what I thought you would do. And missing God while following his commands. We will sometimes come in and we will sit through church and we will read our Bibles and we will offer up half-hearted prayers and we'll do all these religious things. We won't watch R-rated movies. We won't cuss. Whatever it may be, we'll do all these things that we put in the box of religion and say, oh, well, this makes me a righteous person and it's like the whole time, it's just a ritual. It's just what we're doing. We're just doing this stuff. We come in, we sit down, we listen, we sing, we go out, and we go, okay, yes, I did some righteous religious stuff today. And say, okay, well, how was Jesus in whatever you just did? Well, I don't know. Okay, well, how was God glorified by you keeping the law? Well, because I kept it. I did it, right? Well, what about mercy and love and compassion? No, 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 no. That's not. I, I kept the law. The law is ten commandments that I kept. I'm done. That mercy and compassion stuff. That's eighteen. I'm just keeping the law. I'm doing what God told me to do. Right. So where's my blessing? Where's my fulfillment? 
Where is my joy? I've done it, haven't I? I went to church, didn't I? I read my Bible from cover to cover, didn't I? Yet just like Jonah, even though we are doing what God had commanded us to do, we are missing what God intended for us. Just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were doing the stuff. They missed what God was intending for them to grab. They're doing the stuff. They're keeping the religion alive. And as they're doing that, they're going, yeah, but Jesus, show me a sign. And Jesus is going, God, you're missing it. You're missing it. You have kept this law to a jot and to a tittle. You have memorized scripture. You've memorized prophecy. You know all the prophecies. And here I am standing in front of you, the fulfillment of everything that you have built your life around. And you're missing it. We can be so busy doing this routine of righteous acts and miss the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we've quoted it multiple times, Jesus will tell the Pharisees and Sadducees in John's gospel in chapter 5, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. Did we catch that? He says, you search the scriptures, you memorize the scriptures, you've been studying the scriptures, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. He says, you see me in the scriptures, don't you? No, they were just searching the scriptures for the sake of searching the scriptures. They were memorizing the scriptures so that they can say they memorized the scriptures. They were studying the scriptures so they could argue the scriptures. And the whole time is Jesus going, guys, you know all this stuff about the scripture, but you have not yet seen me in it. And maybe you have seen me. You just refuse to acknowledge and submit to me. Maybe you have seen me in these scriptures, but you won't come to me that you might have life. So that's not just testifying that they missed it like, oh, well, what can you expect? They don't have spiritual eyes. They can't see. No, Jesus says, no, you've searched the scriptures. You know, they testify of me. You can see me standing here in fulfillment of everything that ever has been prophesied. But you won't come to me that you might have life. That's not ignorance. That's rebellion. Okay. That's, I know these things are true. I know these things are right. I know these things have to be honest and right because they're of God. But I refuse to submit my life to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So then that goes for us. Are we seeking Jesus in our reading or are we just reading? Are we studying the scriptures to get a deeper understanding of the love and the compassion and the mercy of Christ? Or are we just studying to be able to argue doctrinal points? And I will tell you that very early on in my walk, that's all that's that's what that's how it was presented. Okay, it was presented in that way. It's like you study the Bible so you can learn better how to argue the doctrine of the Bible. It was, you need to study these things, okay? Just like Paul told Timothy, study these things to show yourself approved so that you can argue good arguments about predestination, election, whatever it may be, okay? And that's how it was glorified. And I mean, it was praised, the people who could make good, witty arguments against whatever it may be, Arminianism or Absolutism or whatever the little, 
you know, pet thing was of the day. That's how it was presented. Was that this was the purpose of your studying of the gospel. Was so you could learn how to argue better the things of the gospel. And then I realized, you know what? All that is is Phariseeism. All that is is exactly what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were great at arguing. They were full of scriptural knowledge. If you were going to find out what the law taught, well, by golly, you'd go to a Pharisee. He probably memorized it when he was 10 years old. Yet in all of that knowledge and all of that argumentative ability and everything that they learned, they missed Jesus. The purpose and the main point of the gospel is Jesus. Not arguing doctrinal points. It's understanding Jesus. It's coming to a greater revelation and Jesus. It's understanding His love, His compassion, His mercy, His sovereignty, His Godhood. All of that stuff about Jesus. But the point is Jesus. Okay? It's not just knowing the stuff. Say, oh, well, I can argue the Trinity. Well, great. But what is that doing in your life? Oh, well, I believe in salvation by grace and I can argue it better than Arminianism. Great. But is your life more gracious? Because if you're not showing more grace, then that's just a bunch of hooey to you. It doesn't matter. Oh, well, yeah, look how great they are that they know these things and they can argue these things and they say that they believe these things, but their life is devoid of these things. Well, guess what? You are a Pharisee. Congratulations. You are no better than a Pharisee. You are no better than the ones who could draw nigh to them with their lips and their mouths, but their heart was far from God. I'd rather have a person who was chocked full of relationship with Christ, but had a really hard time arguing doctrinal points. I want someone who knows Jesus, doesn't just know a lot of stuff about Jesus. Okay? So we are to read and study the scriptures to learn more about Christ through the scriptures. We are to seek him to find life. The pursuit of knowledge, even the knowledge of the holy, is void and meaningless if it's not centered around Christ. Lastly, we miss God because we're angry with his commands. This is one that also will sneak up on us and get us. Because instead of running to God in our moments that are challenging to us. Instead, we run from him and say, well, God, you just let me down. You let me down. You allowed this to happen to me. You allowed my life to get off the tracks. You allowed this death. You allowed this illness. You allowed whatever ever calamity that happened. You allowed all these things, God. And I just can't see how you, being a loving and gracious God, can allow these things in my life. And therefore... I don't want anything to do with you right now. Jonah missed everything about everything he did in his entire story. Ultimately, it came down to he was mad at everything that God did. I'm mad at everything you have done. You've brought me through this bad trial and threw me up on the shore. And then I don't get... What I think I deserve to get instead, you show mercy and grace to 125,000 plus people when I expected you to kill them all because that was going to satisfy my little angsty soul better. So we're mad. We miss it. Instead of, and, and, and in, in contrary to that, what then should we do? 
Because if we allow that anger to, to persist, then we're going to get, we're going to miss God and what he has called us to. Our life will continue to be unfulfilled. Our joy will continue to be unfulfilled. Our, our, our entire being is, again, being centered around anger at God instead of fulfillment in Christ. We miss when we are angry how God was faithful to send us on the journey in the first place. He didn't have to. And we aren't guaranteed anywhere in life of leisure and ease and peace. Everyone's life in this fallen, broken world is tough. Yet with us, God walks with us faithfully. We're the only ones who can claim that. We miss how God, even in the rough times when we are in the belly of the well or the midst of the storm, was faithfully there with us. God didn't leave him when he was in the belly. God didn't abandon him when he was in the belly. He was right there with him. He was keeping us from capsizing in the storm. He was preserving us when we were crushed in the depths. And ultimately, he brings us through it, even though that meant sometimes we got to be vomited up on the seashore. We also miss how God is working even through things that we don't understand and that don't go the way that we expected them to. How sometimes he is faithfully fulfilling all that he intends. And like with Jonah, while Jonah was whining on the hill, God was granting repentance and saving 120,000 plus Ninevites. And he was just too angry to see this miraculous thing going on because he was mad. So what do we do then? Instead of running from God, we run to God to gain relationship, wisdom, and understanding. Instead of seeing his commands as a means in and of themselves, we obey his commands to grow in relationship with him, to please him, to learn of him. To be his child and enjoy the proximity of the father. And instead of getting angry at how our life is going. And questioning what God is doing. We trust him by faith. That through faith we have confidence in all that he does. And we don't have to despair over things not going our way. We don't despair over losing something insignificant like Jonah did with the gourd, but rather we rejoice in confidence that God is working the magnificent. So I hope these things have been beneficial. I want us to really work on this week. Go back and read the book of Jonah. Go back and read the first part of chapter 16 here and get again in our minds a mindset that we are running to God and not from God, that we need to be going towards God and not away from God, that we need to be seeking him through his word, through worship, through prayer, because that's where we're going to find the answers when we center our lives around him. And that no, everything is not going to go the way that we think it is. Everything is not going to turn out the way we think it should. That God sometimes sends us into the storm. 
says, get in that boat and go across. And I know full well you're going to hit a, a rough patch when you get in the middle of it. I still sent you. You are still to go. And if you will just have faith and confidence in me, then you're going to see me walk beside you on the waves. So I hope we will pray about this, think about this in the coming week, and may God bless us to grow in it.